Welcome to FBC Midlothian, where we are resilient disciples who lead people to pursue Jesus where we live, work, and play. The scene of the Lord's Supper is loaded with meaning and significance, but it also teaches us something vitally important. To be plugged into the Spirit of Jesus means that we live as servants to each other, without worrying about dignity, status, or self-worth. You ever notice how different family meals are from restaurant meals? You go to a restaurant and you look at a menu, you tell the waiter exactly what you want. The chef takes that order by the recipes they've done, the portions they've decided, and everything comes out on a plate that's just for you. Unless you're married to someone or you live with some of your best friends as one who thinks your plate is fair game for whatever they want too. Now, everybody's got different uh, roles and ways they deal with that. Um, I married someone who thinks in terms of, hey, let's all taste everything that everybody has, and that's great. And I'm, I didn't grow up with that. It's kind of like, well, uh, well you, you order what you want, and I'm going to order what I want. And so there's always this. So every once in a while, she'll look at me, and she'll go, you, you, you don't want to share with me? That never ends well. So your family may be like that, but the, the restaurant meal, it's always set. It's, it's prescribed. You ordered it. It came as a whole. Family meal is completely different. When you're a family meal, you get around a table and usually all the stuff comes on these big plates. In our family, usually it's coming right out of the oven and it goes on trivets, so it's really, really hot. And the way you deal in family meal is you serve each other. You pass that around. Sometimes you'll take the plate and, and pass it around. But at our house, usually it's too hot, so you wind up giving your plate to somebody else and they look at you and they are saying, you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? In every family, there is that person who has already decided what you should have. And they go, don't you want this? Oh, this would be great. They always become cheerleaders for advocates for that particular, that deal. Don't you want some Brussels sprouts? Don't, don't you want some uh, garlic broccoli? We've got some kale. Mmm, nice and crunchy, really healthy for you. I mean, there's always, for me, it was always someone who wanted me to have sweet potatoes. I had a bad experience with sweet potatoes. In my elementary school in Corsicana, Texas, every two weeks we had sweet potatoes on the menu. It was an orange <laughs> deposit <laughs> that always reminded me of an orange uh, deposit from my uncle's dairy farm. Uh, that's what it looked like to me. And so I could not stand it. It, it reeked. I, oh, I just could not get close. And I noticed, I did a little experiment. I noticed um, that every tray in our school's cafeteria that went out with orange stuff on it came back with the same thing when they turned the tray in. There are some things about that that are really wonderful, and there are things about that that are just a little bit bothersome. But family style is the best because you get to do that tasting of everything, but you wind up serving each other. And so it kind of binds us together. Even Aunt What's-Her-Face that wants you to eat what you don't want to eat, there's, there's this playful back and forth where we serve each other and it's glorious. 
By the way, sociologists tell us that the disappearance of the family table is one of the hardest and probably one of the most devastating things to our culture at large. We've forgotten how to do that. I know a builder uh, that uh, worked in our church who once said, you know, every kitchen we design ought to have two things, a microwave and a TV, because that's the only thing that's going to happen in the, in the kitchen. And so when we built our house, we did double ovens, and he goes, what are you doing? You're wasting money. Said, we cook. Nobody cooks. We do. That family experience is huge. Well, I'm telling you that because today we're going to be focusing on a meal that was just packed with freight, and it's one of the special, sacred times we spend together that really kind of draws us not only to God, but to each other. And I'm talking about the Lord's Supper, and I want you to look at something in Scripture that we easily miss, and it's in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. John chapter 13. If you turn your Bibles there, we're going to read a portion of this. Now, I'll tell you, chapters 13 through 17 have parallels in the other Gospels. John's Gospel is different. We've talked about that several times before. But even when you start talking about this particular passage, there's something unique in that. John is the only gospel of the four, the only eyewitness account that does not actually take you through the steps of the Lord's Supper. It's not there. He talks about that night. His information on the context of what was going on is rich and full. There are lots of discourses where Jesus tells the disciples how precious they are and what he's going to do, and he's kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen that night and the following day. That's packed with that. But he does not include the actual supper. The other three do. But the passage we're going to read, those gospels don't include it, and only John, John did. And I think I know why. So they come to the supper. This is what happens. This is verse 1. Before the Passover celebration... Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Some of you may have translations in your hand that say he showed them the full extent of his love. I think that's what that was about. He loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now I want to stop there for a second. This is not our culture. This is so foreign to us. It's not just foreign because this set of events, the, the, the style of it is not normal, but there's more to it than that. This has been a shock to their system. It's kind of a shock to ours. But I think you understand a little bit of where this is coming from. Some of you grew up in homes and cultures where you never wore your shoes in the house. The rule was when you got to the door, you left your shoes uh, at the door. My daughter-in-laws, both of them grew up in homes where you took your shoes off anytime you came to the door. 
my family wasn't like that. We wore our shoes in and out of the house. It was no big deal. And I started noticing. Kelly grew up in Indonesia. You could go to Indonesia to any hut and you'll see the sandals aligned there at the door. There was a, there was a sense of decorum in every culture about what you do with that. Well, in Hebrew culture, that meal, that, that arrival at someone's house, because you wore sandals and you walked on dirt roads everywhere, there was a process where you washed your feet. Usually there's a basin near the door. And so when you came in, instead of kicking off your shoes, you took off your sandals and then you dipped a foot in and you wiped it down, you dipped a foot in and then you went on. That was normal behavior. But when it came to mealtime, and especially the sacred meals, uh, the festival meals, the part of the Jewish culture and their worship of God, there were purification rites. There was extra stuff you did. And Jesus got really irritated with Pharisees because they were absolutely fixated on these things. But they didn't care about what was inside. In fact, he said, you blind guides, you care, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside is decay and death. And it was a big criticism that you care more about the superficial appearance than what's really going in the heart. You with me on that? So when they came to this meal, there was this foot washing experience that should have happened. And in most families, it was left to the youngest or to a servant to do the foot washing. John's the only one who mentions it because most historians point to John as the youngest of the disciples. And so this whole experience we're going to read about is on him. And I've thought several times, I wonder if the other disciples didn't mention that because he was their brother. And it was embarrassing. It was painful. It was one of those overwhelming experiences. And so when Matthew and Peter, when he's dictating to Mark, just kind of goes past that, and they, they talk about the supper, they did, but they don't tell this. This has been painful. And one of the reasons I respect John so much and I love this gospel is, even though it's going to be embarrassing for him, painful, he tells this. This whole thing is packed with freight. They're gathered for this meal. They're gathered around the table. They have come into this place Jesus has just washed their feet, and there's a lot of stuff going on in this whole meal. I want to talk to you about that for just a second. A couple of things. Number one, it memorializes Israel's deliverance. This meal is really important. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God sent ten plagues. And on the tenth one, he gave a way of deliverance. This plague was going to be like no other. This one was going to be the plague of death to the firstborn. Now, it's interesting because in Hebrew culture, and really in ancient culture by and large, the firstborn was considered different from everybody else. And all of us who are oldest, we were the ones that were dedicated to God, as in we could be offered as a sacrifice. In Hebrew culture, they didn't do that. They just earmark the oldest, the firstborn. Same thing goes into the first fruits about tithing, goes into your first grant, all that stuff. But in this case, they're remembering when God had judged all of Egypt, the Israelites, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Parthians, whoever was there. 
And he provided a way of deliverance for all of them. And it was by killing a lamb, you would paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so when that plague, when that judgment came and the blood was on the doorpost, it was a sign that they were trusting God alone for deliverance. And when the angel of death saw that, it would pass over that home. Hence the name Passover. That's what this meal was about. It was sacred. Every year they were practicing it. It was, it was holy. It was special. That's the meal. Second thing. There's a theme that develops here because Luke includes an argument that they had. If you've read the Gospels, you know that the, the disciples argued about greatness a lot. And we get that. I mean, that's, that's kind of common for us, too. Every playground kid knows he wants to be chosen first, not last, on the games, right? You want to have a status. We're consumed with it. They were, too. And so there was an argument evidently all night about this. This was one of those recurring things. And Jesus' theme has been consistent all through his ministry, that the first would be last and he who would be greatest must be the servant of all. They still haven't gotten it. Third, the betrayer is actually at the table in their midst. And Jesus knows it. In fact, Jesus will kneel down at the feet of his betrayer and wash his betrayer's feet. And fourth, finally, no one in this whole scenario moves to serve the others, including John, which is why I think he's the one that penned it for everybody to see. So after this experience, after he does this, the scripture continues. Down to verse 12, I want you to take a look at that. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? And I think this is followed by a big, long pause. Do you understand? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. It's not in your notes, but it's very, very important you hear it. The fellowship of the Savior will always operate at odds with the culture that hosts it. Always. Today, it's, uh, it's already evening in Germany, and I assure you that the fellowship of Jesus in the cities of Germany are operating, trying to follow Jesus, and that is at odds with the culture that surrounds them. The secret church that right now is preparing for darkness and a night of sleep in Iran, one of the fastest growing churches of Jesus, I assure you they are at odds with their culture. And the same is true in Russia, same is true in Australia, the same is true in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, in Europe, in Africa, in 
South America, wherever the church of Jesus gathers to honor him and obey him and follow him, that following will always be upside down to the host culture. And at no place is that more evident in the halls of power and politics, finance, and status. That's what made this troublesome for the disciples because what Jesus is talking about, it's foreign. I spent six of my years of life studying organizational development and leadership. My attic is full, has a 12-foot long bookcase. It's just chock full of very hot books right now on leadership. I remember the first one I read by Greenleaf called Servant Leadership. And my own experience after the 30 years since that time is servant leadership is a wonderful thing to talk about. It is a hard thing to practice. It is a rare gift to see unfold. But that is what Jesus calls us to. It's upside down. It's at odds with the culture. And yet as we lead that way, as we exert our influence that way, it garners attention because it's so radically different. Does your culture see that in you? They didn't see it in the disciples. They were always arguing. James and John, they wanted the right and the left hand of the throne of heaven when Jesus finally came into his kingdom. We want to be number one. I mean, that's just the, it's the competitive nature. It's, it starts on the playground and follows us until we take our last breath. But this master, he did lead that way. And if you're going to plug into the Spirit of Christ, you have to grapple with that, that it's going to be different. And that position and deference and arrogance and so many things you see in that are not of the Lord. And so when you look at leadership, when you look at leadership across the culture, no matter how many times they claim to be followers of Christ, where you see that, you are not seeing the Spirit of Christ. Or would you rather learn it the hard way when Jesus serves you and you find yourself speechless, embarrassed, shocked? Jesus said something to the disciples then that I believe he would say to you now. It's the same thing. He says, I've given you an example to follow. And I don't think it was just about washing feet. It was about the whole attitude, upside down leadership, serving. And then he says, do as I have done to you. To be plugged into the spirit of Jesus is to learn this lesson. And there's nothing quite like coming to the Lord's table that reminds us of that 
and shapes us for that and draws us close to him and to each other because it is something we do together. Paul said, you ought to examine your heart and prepare to share the supper because it's more than just bread and juice. It's more than that. There's something that happens in us when we come to that table and we say, Jesus, this is to remember what you did for me. And so today, we're going to share that table again, just as believers around the world today have already shared it in the same way. And so we're going to do some work to do two things. First, we're going to do the easy preparation. That is, when you came in, you should have received this nice little chalice, plastic chalice. And if you did not get one and you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to share this with us. And we want to make sure you have it. So grab it wherever you stuffed it, pocket in your Bible, in the pocket in front of you. If you didn't get one, our ushers are watching right now. If you hold your hand up, they're going to get it to you. We don't want anybody to miss out right over here. Robert, we've got a couple up toward the front, too. Anybody over here? Right on this aisle? Great. And Riley, that direction, if you'll look over there, you get there you go. Anybody else? Yeah, we've got some more over here. Steve. Amen. <laughs> That's the James Brown form of amen. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> like that. Wait till it gets older. Anybody else? Okay. That's the easy part. Anybody else? Got everybody covered? Great. That's the easy preparation. The harder preparation is this, that you examine your heart. That's why I ask you some uncomfortable questions that I've had to ask myself all summer. Right now, is your heart tender or are there some folks you harbor resentment for that you refuse to forgive? And if you do, then I need to remind you of another part of the Lord's Prayer that we started last week. And Father, forgive us our trespasses as what? We forgive those who trespass against us. In your heart, as you prepare your heart, will you say right now to Jesus, I offer you this relationship. Break my heart, Jesus, that I might forgive. For some of you, there may be a journey you've been on. That's why you're here. It's the journey back to the Lord. Taking time. There's been stuff that's been in the way, and you may find you feel like you've just built a wall between you and the Lord. And it's time for you to have a conversation with him and offer him your life. So we're going to pray. And then in just a few minutes, we're going to sing. Our team is going to come back and it's going to be, you're going to join them, but they're wanting to wash this over you because it's a song that talks about how great, how beautiful the love of God is for us. And we need to remember that. Or like the prodigal, we will stay away when we need to come to our senses and come running home. And so I want to give you just a moment to pray 
and to settle some things in your heart. I remember one day in San Diego being in the beautiful sunshine of that day and conviction just fell on me and I said to the Lord, I don't want to be angry anymore. What will it be for you? Let's pray about that right now. Would you join me? Father, we are so grateful for grace because we know there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no way we can settle the accounts, tip the scales. But you did. And so before we partake of this meal, we want to say thank you for loving us. We thank you for going to the cross for us. And we want our hearts to be ready to honor you today. So, Father, we bring our anger. We bring our moral choices. We bring broken relationships. We bring our own broken record. And we ask that you apply the incredible mercy of the cross to our lives. that you would break a stranglehold of bitterness, that you would give us a new vision to trust your commands, not because they're controlling, but because they are helpful and healthy. And we ask for your forgiveness to be washed over our failures, even our ambition, that we might be people who lead through serving and through compassion. Wash over us and help us to remember just how great your love is for us. That we pray in Jesus' name. If you would like to talk to somebody about what you've heard, or you have any questions, send us a text at 972-845-5796, and a pastor will get right back to you. Subscribe to this podcast to get notified each week when new content is posted. If you're local to the Midlothian, Texas area, we would love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services at 8 o'clock, 9.30, or 11. You can also visit us online at fbcmidlow.com. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.